All right, if you'll turn to Acts chapter number 2, we'll go ahead and look at our passage tonight, Acts chapter number 2. And we're going to begin in verse 14, and with intent, we're going to look to get down through verse 24. Whether we get that far tonight, uh, we'll see. Uh, It's not required, of course. We'll allow it to go as it goes. But what we're going to be looking at tonight, and definitely we'll be taking it in at least two parts, is the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And I've simply just entitled this, The Sermon of the Sovereign Christ. The Sermon of the Sovereign Christ. And I want to approach this passage from a couple different angles. And I want to look at it not only for the contents, of course, that is certainly our primary focus, but I also want us to look at it from the perspective of how Peter preached this sermon. Uh, I think it's very telling when we look at sermons that are preached throughout the Bible, uh, depending upon who is speaking it, uh, we see various types of sermons and we see various uh, ways in which the truth is being proclaimed. And I'm not sure that there's a sermon that we see throughout the Word that is as clear and is as amazing in its structure than what Peter does in this sermon. Uh, Peter begins by lifting up Christ, he continues to lift up Christ, and he presses very directly the necessity upon the hearer to repentance and faith. And what his emphasis is on is on the work of Christ. And now remember, we're talking about Peter, and we're talking about a man who at one point uh, claimed to be very bold but found out very quickly he was not as bold as what he thought he was. We're talking about the same Peter who said, Lord, I will never forsake you and yet, or never deny you, and yet he did that three times. We are seeing an amazing transformation that took place. And even as we were reading there in the book of Luke and looking at earlier in Peter's life, we don't see the kind of boldness that we see in a sermon. It's remarkable, not only in the fact of how clear it is, but it's also very remarkable at how simple it is. Now, I don't mean simple from the standpoint that there's not deep content here. What I mean is it, it's not a demonstration of some form of great learning um, or some great education, but rather he's not, his intent is not for us to be impressed with him as an orator, but rather he simply presses the truth. It's, I've, I read through this a few times this week from, from verse 14 down to when it, it comes to an end in this section down through verse 36. And you don't see him giving any thrilling stories or illustrations, but you also don't see him really getting involved and mired in debates or controversy. He simply preaches the truth. He declares divine truth. And what Peter is relying upon, he is relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He's not relying upon his ability to exposit a text. He's dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. There is nothing in this passage that if Peter was standing before a group of critics, people who critique a sermon, Uh, There is none of them that would say that impresses me in the flesh or that that is just one of those sermons that really just, you know, I've heard sermons, but I've never heard one like that. 
But yet, when we get to the very end of it, the result is, and we won't look at this tonight, is in verse 37 when it says they were pricked in their heart. You see, when he preached this sermon, he preached it in the power of the Spirit, and he had one object and one subject, and it was the lifting up of this sovereign Christ with a complete dependence and a complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit. It was set forth before men who were fallen. It was set forth before men who were guilty of the very crime, right, of crucifying this Jesus who he is exalting. Now, anybody can stand up and preach a sermon before a friendly crowd. They can stand up and they can preach before their church. And yes, there are some things involved in that. But this was not a receptive audience. This was not a group of people who Peter was going to win over. As a matter of fact, the boldness that he's displaying here is certainly quite different than what he had originally, what we see of Peter earlier. So what I want to do tonight is I want to break this at least up into two parts. <clears throat> and in the first part of it, uh, Peter preaches and demonstrates by declaring the purpose of the day of Pentecost. And what I want us to do as we go through this and go through some of these verses, I want you to notice how quickly and how smoothly and how directly that Peter moves from one subject to the next, how quickly he moves from one statement to the next, and how direct he is in the power of the Spirit. Now, you'll recall that as we left off last week, as this, this day of Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit and the speaking of these uh, foreign tongues that had never been learned before, there was a question as to what was happening. And it's verse 13 and 12 and verse 13 where the question is asked, what meaneth this? What, what's happening here? There were some that were concerned and they wanted to know more, but then there was this mocking group. And they're the ones in verse 13 that simply said, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. So their accusation towards what was happening is that these men are simply drunk. These men have been in the bottle, if you will. But I want you to notice how Peter deals with these mocking individuals. It says that he stands up with the 11, lifts up his voice and says unto them, ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, this be known unto you, and hearken to my words. This is a, this is a, a commanding stance. Now again, he's not standing in the power of his own strength. He's not standing so that we might be impressed with his ability to stand bold. He's standing in the power of the Spirit. And he addresses who the hearers are, or who he wants to hearken to his words. Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Now, who is he confronting? He is confronting those who are mocking the message. They are mocking what's being seen here. And their accusation to him is, is these men are drunk. Now, notice verse 14 or verse 15. He says, for these are not drunken as ye suppose. In other words, Peter hits this head on. He says, these men that you see that are speaking in these foreign tongues, which they've never learned, are not drunk, as you suppose. And he does make mention that it's the third hour of the day. 
Now we could go on a we could go on a bit of a journey there, and I could take you down a journey of all the various reasons why he said this is the third hour of the day. But I want you to notice that Peter does not get into that explanation to them. He doesn't say it's the third hour of the day. I want you to know why this isn't possible. He just declares these men are not drunk as you say they are. Now again, it's not that the content doesn't matter. But Peter is not getting into a controversy or a debate about why they're not drunk because it's the third hour of the day. He doesn't attempt to explain it away. He just simply says they are not drunk. And he goes on to say that, but this, verse 16, is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He immediately drives to a prophecy about what's happening in the book of Joel. So Peter stands, he lifts up his voice with boldness, and he's telling them, I'm going to explain to you what you're seeing today. I'm going to explain it to you, and I'm going to begin by explaining it to you that this is a fulfillment of prophecy that Joel spoke of. Now, we're going to turn to that passage in Joel, which the reference there is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And this is what he was making reference to. He was making reference to what was happening is related to what Joel the prophet had said about the coming or the outpouring of the Spirit. In Joel 2, verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So Peter is now explaining to them this is what's happening in verse 17. He is quoting what we just read. And it came, shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter here quotes Joel almost word for word, right? And what he is saying here is what you are seeing happening is a fulfillment of the very prophecy in which Joel spoke of. Now, his primary role here is in the identification of the Messiah. And what he's doing by quoting Joel is he is giving this fourfold proof of the reality of the Messiah, not only the Messiah's coming, but the Messiah's enthronement and the establishment of his kingdom by pointing these hearers to Jesus Christ and saying, this is the Messiah. Now again, content-wise, we could go line for line and pull apart every one of those statements in verse 17, 18, 19, and 20, and we could do an entire study on that. My intent tonight is not to go through that. However, 
I do want to pull out what this fourfold proof that he's pointing them to. Remember, he doesn't give these things and then say, all right, now let's debate about what I just said. No, he declares it as the truth and he moves on to the next subject. He quotes this passage because even many of those hearers may have had a knowledge of what he was talking about. Again, remember, the Jews, primarily, they denied the reality of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. He's explaining to them by preaching directly that this is the fourfold proof of what Joel was talking about. That this Messiah, he would be enthroned and his kingdom would be established and this person, this individual, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he does make reference to the last days. And when we see the phrase, the last days, I know there's always a controversy with people about when did the last days begin. And you can always say that the last days are from the the time when Jesus came until he comes again. We're dealing in the last days. It's the time of space between his first coming and his second coming. Now, we could get nuanced in this and we could get a little bit more technical and say, well, I think it's specifically this date. I think it's specifically this time. Or we can look at it from the perspective of biblically it's between his first coming and his second coming we're talking about the last days so in the last days these events are going to take place the spirit of god he speaks about here being poured out upon all flesh he talks about sons he talks about daughters prophesying he talks about young men seeing visions and old men dreaming dreams and my servants and handmaidens i'll pour out in those days of my spirit they'll prophesy they will they will future tell if you will remember all what we learned last week about the the miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy and visions those were all temporary gifts to announce the enthronement of Christ and also to announce the presence because there's not a completed copy of the word of God. So this is what's happening between the first and the second coming. These are those last days. Now, he talks about the spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh, including Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. Now, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit had his beginning in these days because we know that even in the Old Testament, there were those prophets and those individuals who were in fact filled with the Spirit. Uh, Peter talks about this actually in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And you'll notice that he uses the terminology, the Spirit of Christ, and he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angel desire to look into. So Peter 
writing in 1 Peter, talking about how even the prophets had the Spirit of Christ upon them, that they spoke in the Old Testament with the Spirit's direction here. But he's talking about now this great outpouring of the Spirit was going to be a very clear signal that Christ had come and his kingdom has been established. Okay, so this announcement, this sermon that Peter is talking about here when he references Joel, he is saying, this, men, women, all that will hear me, this is the announcement that Jesus Christ has come, he is enthroned, and his kingdom has been established. Now, there's always this, this concern and this debate. How were people in the Old Testament regenerated? They were regenerated the same way you and I are. They're regenerated by the Spirit of God. So this is not a brand new thing. This is not the Spirit now comes onto the scene and he's never been active before. He's always been active. Yet now we understand even when you look at the Old Testament and up to a certain point, the primary work of the Holy Spirit of God had been limited to the nation of Israel. They were the ones that were given the first oracles. They were the ones that were given these great truths first. The gospel came to them first. But now this Holy Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh, now this is the announcement and the opening up that his grace has now scattered beyond just the borders and the boundaries of, of the Jews, and it's gone into all nations. What the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to tell them is declaring that Christ has come. Christ has not only come, he's redeemed his people and he's established his kingdom. These are those promises that were made to Abraham all coming to fulfillment. You go all the way back and you read and how God made these promises to make a great nation and that he would be the father of many nations. This is the promise of Abraham by God being fulfilled in him. So you see, there's a number of things that are happening to show that this is in fact the coming of this Messiah. And he also is telling us here that in these verses that the judgment of God Right? It's also being announced that it has fallen upon the nation of Israel for their rejection and crucifixion of Christ. Joel is describing in that passage God's judgment of Israel, and he's using these, these figurative symbols. Now, what did the Jews do with the gospel when they heard it? They treated it as contempt. They treated it as something that should not be followed. God, of course, poured out his judgment upon the government of Israel as a nation. He turned, he turned the light of the gospel off and he put them into a blinded state. Now, this is a warning to us. It's a warning to all who will hear that a blinded Israel is not for us to simply look at and to uh, say that's a terrible thing that's happened to them. It should stand as a warning to all who trifle with the things of God who simply treat it as meaningless, who treat it as something that is not worth paying attention to. Remember who Peter is talking to. Peter is talking to people who are mocking the very thing that's happening on this day, even though it's a direct fulfillment of what Joel said, this will be your clear sign that the Messiah has come. And yet we also have hope tonight knowing that now the gospel of grace the grace of God is now proclaimed. It's being proclaimed to all nations of the world. 
It, it is noted there in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall escape the eternal judgment, shall escape that. But remember, there was also a judgment poured out upon Israel and poured out upon Jerusalem and poured out on them for their rejection of Christ. But now we see God being proclaimed to all the nations of the world. We see the gospel now going out into the Gentile nations. And we see that according to all these things, we see that the purposes of God and his sovereign purposes of grace are going into the world. Pentecost was not given to overemphasize the Holy Spirit that we treated the Spirit and exalted him above everything else. It was to point us to Christ. The Spirit of God speaks of Christ. His goal is not to glorify and magnify himself. His goal is to speak of the truth of Christ. So we have this pouring out of the Spirit in order that Christ might be clearly seen, Christ may be clearly known, and that these are the signs and these are the wonders. Now, again, there's a lot of things we could talk about in each one of those verses. And again, that's not the intent for tonight. But I do want you to notice that in verses 22 through 24, Peter immediately moves into the person and the work of Christ. So right after he gives all of this information about pouring out of the Spirit, after he speaks about all these, he hasn't mentioned Christ in verse, in, from verse 14 until he gets to verse 22. And then he says, he calls their attention again, ye men of Israel... Hear these words. Now, you and I hear these words, and they're words that mean something of beauty to us. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that, I actually heard, some, I heard a preacher today say this, that uh, the, original, the original language on this actually says Jesus the Nazarite, or Jesus, it, it's a, the Nazarene, rather. It has a, it has a, a, a to, to the Jews that were hearing it, it almost had a, uh, a low sound to it. That, uh, because when you mention, does anything good come out of Nazareth? No, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. To say this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this man that was despised by most of the Jews, to announce this by saying Jesus of Nazareth, and then using this phrase, a man approved of God among you. This is Peter clearly declaring exactly who this Messiah is. Now, you have to almost look at verse 22 with a bit of what Peter was anticipating a question the Jews might ask, right? Because what's happened to this point? If all these things are true, if, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why in the world, if he's established a kingdom, if he's enthroned, then how are you going to explain that we nailed him to a cross? Now, this is where Peter gets into this deep reality of the sovereignty of Christ in the body of this sermon. It's an anticipation of what he believes the Jews are going to ask him about. And he kind of, you know when you anticipate what someone's going to say and you kind of get out ahead of it? That's what he's doing. He's, he knows that when he announces Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, he gets out ahead of it and says, I'm going to explain to you how this Christ, this Jesus, how you nailed him to a cross and the very reason why you did. And that the very fact that you did these things 
is the very reason why he's enthroned and the very reason why his kingdom's been established. Brethren, we have to get in our mind's eye that the very crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the very rejection, his very passion, his very going to the cross was a direct fulfillment of the providence and the sovereignty of God. And when those wicked, evil men nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, they were moving along the enthronement of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom, even though they were carrying out a wicked, vile act. You see, this is, this is marvelous in the way that Peter is, is saying this and what he's speaking of. Notice when he uses this terminology, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. He's not just saying this is a person that God approved of. You know what he's declaring? He's declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was the God-man. Now that's the very thing. Think about this. That's the very thing that they finally said, we got to get something on Jesus. So when they were trying to find a reason to execute him, they got him on so-called blasphemy. Why? Because he claimed equality with God. What's Peter doing? Peter is saying that very fact is this Jesus of Nazareth was the God-man. Fully God, fully man. It's interesting. There's a couple of verses we'll look at. Uh, John 8, verse 56 John 8, verse 56. These are this couple of verses that kind of declare this truth. And of course, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in this narrative here in, in John 8. Um, let's, go, let's go back to verse 54. He says, if, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham, again, think about what Jesus was telling them. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, we understand Abraham didn't know all the details. He didn't know all the intricate details of the cross. He didn't understand fully all that, but he believed in the promise of the Messiah. And isn't it amazing that Jesus, speaking of Abraham himself, said, he, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is an indictment against the Pharisees, saying even your father Abraham, Abraham was, hidden, was held in the highest regard. Your own father Abraham saw me. And you don't, and I'm standing right before you. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What was Jesus declaring there in John 8? He was declaring his own deity. I am before him. Jesus himself declared to be deity. He declared himself to be God. So what did we see the Jews? The Jews said, oh yes, Jesus, we accept that. No, they responded. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. You see what angered them so was this claim of Jesus's deity. Yet what does Peter, when he declares in that sermon, what is he declaring? He's declaring the very thing that the Jews hated. This is and was the God-man. This is the Jesus, the God-man who you have crucified. 
Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he puts it to Timothy very clearly and declares the reality of God, of Jesus being God. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So what Peter is declaring in this sermon, he is declaring that Jesus was approved of God. He is deity. And then he goes on and he proves how Jesus actually showed you this. A man approved of God among you, back at Acts 2, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Verse 23 is really the answer to what they're disputing. Because here is what's facts. The miracles that were performed by Christ, those were indisputable facts in those days of public record. Nobody could say those miracles didn't happen. It was indisputable fact that those happened. Even those who murdered Jesus, in their mind, could not dispute that he actually performed miracles. That man who in the very first miracle turned water into wine. That Jesus who calmed a raging sea. That Jesus who gave sight to the blind. That Jesus who fed the multitudes. That Jesus who cleansed lepers. That Jesus who raised the dead, i.e. Lazarus, is God. That's what Peter is declaring. He's declaring that this Jesus of Nazareth this man who is generally known by that name, he is approved of God. Man and sinners condemned him as not being God, and yet the miracles, the wonders, and the signs proved and testified that he, in fact, was God. Notice that little phrase in verse 22, which God did by him. He did these miracles that Peter's saying here. Jesus did those miracles by the divine power in which he had even while he was clothed in human flesh. Now when he says, ye yourselves also know, he doesn't mean that you know him as Messiah. What he, they mean, what he means there is that you were even eyewitnesses of these miracles so that you can't dispute them. They happened. You saw them. So verse 23 is the answer to that anticipated question. So how did this Christ, if he's Christ, if he's God, this God-man, how did he come to die a shameful death on the cross? Again, Peter's anticipating what they would be asking. Verse 23 is the answer. Him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The death of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection was all an act of God. This was not a random event in history. This was not something that the, these, these wicked, vile men got an advantage upon Jesus and they were able to finally take him, put him on a cross, execute him for blasphemy. No, Peter is saying that this Jesus was delivered 
by the determinate, look at the wording there, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The anticipated question in their minds that Peter was anticipating was, how can a person that's approved of God be abandoned by that God if he's approved of him? God delivered Jesus to death. Not only did he deliver him to death, he delivered him up to be put to death for an elect group of people. Approved of God by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That means that the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God means it was performed in the wisdom of God, which is of infinite knowledge. That means that there is this holy end to everything it's doing. So everything that Christ endured, all the events that led up to the cross were not only according to the will of God, but according to the counsel of the will of God. In other words, all of these events were not random. All of these things were done by the determined counsel and sovereignty of God. Jesus died, he suffered, he was raised again. But then notice, he doesn't let them off the hook. And again, remember Peter speaking to an unfriendly crowd. This is all by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God determined all these things. This is an act of God. But it was by their wicked and evil hands that they carried out the very will and counsel of God. The only way that sinners can be saved, the only satisfaction of God's justice, was fulfilled or completed in the death of the Son of God. The only way satisfactory a payment could be made is through the death of the cross. But what Peter is saying here is, yes, Christ died by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But he died by the hands of wicked men. Now don't miss this. Acting according to their own free will. Remember, the sovereignty of God does not negate the free will of man in the sense that man will still do what man is going to do. This is what happened when people are left to their own free will. This is the doctrine of free will. This is what the disgust that we see. If we were left to our own free will, even we would have crucified the Lord of glory. This is an example of where these men were used to carry out the very counsel and the very sovereignty of God. But then notice Peter says, whom God hath raised up. Talks about the resurrection here. Having loosed the pains of death, and I love this because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now connect these thoughts together and you see this very clearly. The very same God who in the determinate counsel and foreknowledge delivered Jesus up to die is the same God who delivered him from death. The very same God. Having loosed the pains of death. 
having given, taken those things away. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. This was the sovereign will of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Peter is proclaiming that Jesus Christ, the Savior, abolished death itself. He paid the penalty. He abolished the power of sin, the power of death. He abolished the terror and the fear of death to all who believe. Really, and not really, it is declared truth, fact, the resurrection of Christ was God's public declaration that justice had been satisfied for the people sent. The resurrection proves that God the Father was satisfied with the payment. That payment for sin, that payment was paid in full. And yet here we see Jesus being exalted and elevated and lifted up. Peter is not engaging. These are not debatable items. Now why? Because he's relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the sermon. These things that Peter is saying are difficult. They're difficult truths. The content is deep. But he's relying upon the Spirit of God to apply this truth to their hearts. Every time the Word of God is preached, every time the Word of God is proclaimed, it is the Holy Spirit of God that opens the eyes, convicts the heart, pricks the heart as we'll look at next week. It is the Spirit of God's work. It's not the orator. It's not the preacher. It's not his ability to expound a text. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So when you see Pentecost and you see some denominations that have completely misunderstood that Pentecost is now so we're supposed to glorify the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to speak in tongues and do all these things, they've missed the point. Pentecost was meant to point this is the fourfold proof that this is the Messiah. This is the promise and the prophecies of Joel. This is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. This is the Christ who is now enthroned and the Christ whose kingdom is established. It is by these very truths that Peter preaches this sermon of the sovereign Christ. Now next week, we'll get into the second half of this, beginning in verse 25. And Peter brings up another Old Testament person. He brings up David. And he talks about David spoke concerning him. Even David was speaking about Christ. And he gives gives the words that David spoke, talking about how he foresaw the Lord always before David his face. So if you want to read ahead, our intent next week will be from going from verse 25 to the end of the sermon, which will be uh, verse 36. So, but tonight we'll just focus on those things we've heard tonight about the person and the work of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great sermon at Pentecost. And Lord, we thank you that you empowered this man, Peter, to stand up boldly, and to proclaim the great truths. 
The boldness of Peter is amazing to us because we know the story, we know the narrative of what, where Peter had been, where Peter had gone, and how now he's being used to stand up before an angry crowd. People who had no desire to acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. May we be bold in our stance for what we believe. May we declare the word of God relying upon the Holy Spirit of God. Father, help us not to rely upon our own human intelligence, our education, but to rely upon the Spirit to proclaim the word of God to people as they are. Father, we pray that you would, through the Spirit, do a work in this ministry here, in this, this location, Father, as individuals come who do not know Christ as their Savior, those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, that the Spirit of God would open their eyes, open their ears to be able to see and to hear the great truths. Even those that come mocking, even those that come with doubt and skepticism, may we truly see the power of the Holy Spirit here to work in the lives even of the most hardened of sinners. Father, thank you for allowing us to see the truth and not blinding our eyes and keeping us away from the light of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that the gospel has gone forth and continues to go forth in this world and that as it goes forth, it will bring forth fruit. It will bring forth a harvest of souls. Father, thank you for your word tonight. May it be a settled matter in our heart and may it be a place of rejoicing that we've been reminded again about the sovereignty of our Lord and even the very sovereignty of the actions and the works and the person of Christ that secured and accomplished our salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. All right.